Welcome to McKinsey on the Middle East, where we break down our top regional articles and insights in conversation with the authors. Join us for conversations on some of the most pressing issues and how we are enabling sustainable and inclusive growth. Today, we're taking a deeper look into the gaps in education caused by the COVID pandemic. According to a McKinsey report, how COVID-19 caused a global learning crisis, students around the world lost about eight months of schooling. We're going to look into what caused this, who was affected the most, and what can be done going forward. Joining us today is Stephen Hall, one of the authors of the report. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So we're talking a bit earlier, and you told me that a lot of members of your family, including your brother and your cousins, are actually educators. Is this what inspired you to co-author this report? I don't think it's what inspired me to, to work in education. Um, it's more the other way around, that they tend to find it quite funny that they're the ones who actually do the job, and I'm the, ones, the one who's, who's writing things. Um, but this report, for once, my brother read it and said he actually thought we said some interesting things, which I felt was a very high bar of praise to get the sign-off of your little brother. So. Sounds like it. We're off to a good start. Um, okay, let's take a step back. So you had me thinking about my time as a student and being in school. Can you share where it was stood before the pandemic? The report mentioned that there were a few archetypes of education systems around the globe. And specifically, where does the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa fit into that? So globally, pre-pandemic, education was a, a system with a lot of problems. So there were far too many children in far too many countries who were leaving school without the literacy and numeracy skills that they needed, who weren't going on to get the opportunities that they, that they deserved. Very, very big gaps between countries, and also very, very big gaps within countries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the difference between the richest students and the poorest students, even in relatively high-performing education systems, uh, is, is very, very wide. And that's been a very stubborn gap to try to close. When we look at the Middle East, obviously, it's a very, very large region, very diverse region. And we see some of those same things. So different levels of performance across the system. Um, but also then within systems, big gaps between rural and urban areas, between students in public schools and private schools. And so many of the same challenges that we see on a global level are to some extent replicated across the countries in our region. That's very interesting. So we know that during the pandemic, this even began to change more. Um, And as school systems were confronted by the pandemic, we saw a number of different approaches from countries around the world. And there was a considerable variety between and even within countries, as you just mentioned, but certain patterns did emerge, right? So can you share some of the global patterns that were identified? So I think between, uh, I mean, of course, the biggest driver of difference is the different trajectories of the virus. So when different countries had waves of particular variants and therefore needed to respond in particular ways. First and foremost, this is driven Mm -hmm. by the health uh, crisis. At the same time, different systems responded in different ways in terms of when did they shut down schools, for how long did they shut down schools, what did they put in place in terms of blended uh, or hybrid solutions versus just having schools be, be shut down altogether. Um, and so some of the variety that you see is driven by those two things. So how long were schools closed for? And then how much of a, uh, a remote option was offered to kids during the period that schools were closed? And so you see some countries, in particular in, in South Asia and Latin America, where schools were closed for a very significant component of, of 2020, 2021. Um, and also, you know, it took longer to sort out some of the, uh, the remote learning solutions. Other systems which shut down immediately, but then were able to pretty quickly get remote learning solutions there and have been back disrupted but in person uh, since then. And so that starts to generate some of the differences that you see in our numbers between systems where, you know, according to our, our estimate, you would see students being maybe four or five months behind where they were 
uh, pre-pandemic or would have expect, been expected to be pre-pandemic. Um, systems that are more like 10 months with you know, a whole academic year of learning. Wow. And then here in the region, we're at about, you know, across the, the, the whole Middle East and North Africa, about uh, six months behind where we'd have expected to be relative to a global average of about eight Okay, so are we, would you say we're in the middle or we're towards the, the tail end of it? I'd say we're it is fairly, you know, again, significant variation within the region, but probably, you know, roughly in the middle relative to uh, the global picture. Okay, very interesting. So now it seems that the regions are fully or partially closed the most, from what you just told me, um, basically the ones that did the most remote and hybrid learning, um, they seem to be the farthest behind. So speaking frankly, does this mean that remote and hybrid learning just doesn't work? Or is it, as I suspect, a bit more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated than that. So pre-pandemic, we already knew that technology and education is great for some things and is not yet as good as in person for other things. Mm -hmm. And any teacher knows that. Um, Any parent knows that. I think during the pandemic, we had a huge shift in one direction. But it was also a shift that we didn't really prepare for, right? We did it overnight or in the space of a week. Right. So it wasn't a great test of how well this solution can work, in particular in places that weren't already well prepared. If I think about for, for us at home, we feel very fortunate that my daughter you know, had a, a room, had her desk, had a, a device to learn on, had internet connection. So her school was able to get up and running. It was still clunky. It was still you know, a bit painful. There were tears from her and from imagine. us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we, we got there reasonably smoothly. But that was, not, of course, not the case for every child in every country, right. in every school. So first of all, I think it's not a, you know, to, to say that what we put in place is not uh, as good as, as being in the classroom is, is not to say that the, it can, technology can never be important in education and can never play an important role. Um, and secondly, I think places got better over time, right? So again, any parent probably now, you know, when you think about how things have been during the most recent periods, schools are a lot smoother. They're a lot more up to speed on using the different tools, interacting with kids. Kids are much more savvy about how they're using devices, etc. And so, you know, a lot of that negative impact, again, in our model, we assume sort of improving efficiency of, of, uh, of remote learning. So a lot of that comes in the early days when everybody was scrambling and it was really more of a crisis. Right, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, and I also read that in the, in the report that in some cases, remote schooling was actually really good. It worked really well. I think especially in Australia, there's a case study that showed that. So what are the differentiators in that study versus other remote learning um, non-success stories and maybe some other success stories outside of Australia? So I think there's a number of things that, that make, uh, make for success, right? So some of it is around the context for kids so devices connectivity mm-hmm. do they have a quiet safe space at home to work um are their parents able to provide them with with support when they need um now that's not to say that's purely a an economic difference right? even in the richest countries there are children where some of that is not true um but of course it's it it, it is affected by socioeconomic development of the of the country and the second thing is how prepared were the schools Mm-hmm. Uh, how ready were the teachers? How used were the teachers to using different technology tools? Was the curriculum in a form that could actually be used with a, uh, a remote learning platform? How much training had they already had? Um, and in places where that wasn't the case, how quickly could they roll that out? And we saw that in a couple of uh, you know systems in the region where they were able to pretty quickly roll out training and technology platforms to to, uh, to schools, to teachers, to students to help to to get us you know up and running again as quickly as possible. So do you think looking into the future that teachers are going to have to have this extra tool in their arsenal? Are they going to have to learn how to do 
remote learning and hybrid learning um, as part of their education and preparation? I think there's a real risk as we think about education, whether as parents or as teachers or as administrators in government, that we all breathe a big sigh of relief and say, oh, khalas, we're back to normal, we're back in, uh, you know, that, that's all behind us now. And of course, there are many important things about being back in school, about, you know, what the opportunities that gives children for learning, but also for broader social and emotional growth. At the same time, there are things about the technology tools that we've all learned how to use that can be really, really helpful. So, you know, it would be a shame to lose the potential for how those tools can complement mm-hmm. what we're doing, whether that's for children who are in remote areas, rural areas, children who are studying things that their local school doesn't offer, teachers who want to be providing additional support, you know, complementing what they do in the classroom with work outside the classroom. So many different ways that we can think about technology as a complement to what we would do in a traditional brick and mortar school, as opposed to you know, treating this as you know, almost a, a, a divergence between it's either one or the other. And so I think how you use those tools, building on what we've all learned in the course of this very intense experiment, should definitely be a part of, of, of teaching and therefore of teacher preparation in the future. That's a great answer. You know, I don't think there's going to be such a thing as going back to normal. I think we're going to have to learn to live with the lessons of this pandemic for a long time. Um, you did mention something about a school, right? The fact that it's not normal to go back to school. So, I mean, this is a bit philosophical, but what is a school? Because most of us think of a school as, you know, just a place of learning, a brick and mortar type of place. It's clear from this pandemic and its effects that it's much more than that. So, you know, it's also a place where there's emotional, physical, and even dietary nutritional benefits that are being met. But in your mind, what is a school specifically? So I think that's, uh, that's a very nice way of framing it, right? That a school is, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a community which may be centered around a building, but, but it's not just that. Um, and, but nor is it only a learning environment. And so what we've seen uh, through the pandemic is probably that we've got better and better at supporting the... Uh, you know, learning and uh, academic outcomes of children using alternatives to in-person schooling. But that a lot of the other things that are valuable about schooling for children at different ages are much more difficult to do in that remote setting. And you see that in some of the sort of emerging evidence around sort of mental health and emotional well-being of, of children. We talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit in the report. It's, you know, academics are important, but it's not the only thing that we that we should be focusing on. So I think you know, again, it's th- this idea of a school as being a, a community which can also interact virtually. Of course, it can interact virtually. And, and you know, it's actually at, in, in some ways great now that you can be in touch much more smoothly with your child's school um, than having to wait for a parent's evening. You know, that, that's a very obvious shift, which I think now is we'll, 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 never, go, we'll never go back to. But that the, the actual building, the play opportunities, the connectivity opportunities, the different things that children learn in school outside the classroom. Um, are also very, very important for their development. Absolutely. I think, and you know, we all spent the last two years on Zoom and I think we're all ready to connect back in person. So I can imagine what it's like for somebody who's a lot younger and in school still. Um, just to shift a bit here. So one of the things that you mentioned in the report that really struck me was that we stand to lose $1.6 billion in future GDP from lost educational time. So can you explain what that really means? Does this mean that, you know, people are going to be reading too slowly and missing an email or they're not going to be able to read a book or a data set and then therefore not get the inspiration for a brilliant idea? Can you break that down for me a bit more? The link between the outcomes of an education system and then economic growth and development in that country or, or region is pretty clearly established over, you know, periods of decades. 
um, which is why we, we played this forward uh, a, a long time in the report. Um, the channels for how that works, there's of course lots of, lots of those things. So you know, better education outcomes mean more children stay in school for longer, get better qualifications, go on to you know, post-school education, and then you know, go on to get better, higher paying jobs, more productive jobs, which has an impact on, on GDP. Um, at the same time, you know, countries that have higher, uh, more highly educated workforces attract more, um, uh, more investment. And so that also, that also drives growth. Having more educated people can also be an important source of, of innovation. So you know, the, we play this forward in terms of GDP, partly not because we want to say that the only purpose of education is economic growth and economic outcomes and productive workers, but also to show that this is not just an education crisis and that the potential ramifications of, of this gap, if we don't help people catch up, is important for their individual economic outcomes and then also at a, at a social you know society country level can have a longer term impact as well that's an impact on everything absolutely what do we do to catch up how do we catch up so we talked about this a little bit in the report i think there's a short-term recovery phase to this and also a really important opportunity to step back and, and reimagine how we're thinking about education i think in the recovery phase there are a number of groups of children who are actually quite likely not to come back to school. So, you know, older kids who are getting towards the end of high school may have dropped out. Um, in some parts of the world, you know, children, especially given the economic crisis, children have ended up having to go to work. So, and we know from previous, you know, natural disasters or public health uh, crises that there is an impact on the number of kids who actually come back to school. Even in some countries, because schools have been closed, teachers have gone on to get other jobs. And so there's a really important piece, which is just making sure that we get uh, children and, and teachers back into schools and, and feeling properly supported. Second thing is to understand where we actually stand. In many countries, if I look around the, the region here, national assessments were, didn't happen in the last couple of years. So we don't necessarily have data mm. on where children are right now. And we also know that the effect, yes, you can take an overall system level effect. You mentioned this example from Australia. Um, which showed that overall as a system, we were roughly where we'd expect to be. But poorer kids in, the, in those schools were two months behind uh, the richer kids. So in other words, the, the pandemic had kind of had a, had sort of exacerbated some under pre, pre-existing gaps. It's really important that we understand where we are, where different schools are, different children are, different, uh, different parts of the country uh, are up to. And then the third thing is, what, does it, what can we do to help them catch up? And there are countries which have, you know, proposed to do this with additional coaching and tutoring for the kids who need it most. That's difficult because you have to find coaches and tutors, which requires money, requires people, requires time, but can be a very effective method to help children catch up um, if you can target it effectively. There's definitely something we can do with technology. So we've, we've got these technology platforms, we've got curriculum materials, we've got assessments. So there are ways that we can provide additional support if we can use technology to identify the children who need that and also then to provide that. Mm-hmm. That may be part of, 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 of what we need to do. And then there are other systems where the resources aren't there. If you're a teacher in a school with 40, 50, 60 kids in your classroom, your ability to do anything more than you were doing already, certainly to try to differentiate and identify the kids who need the most help is, is probably quite limited. And so some of this is for you know, recommitting to the things that we know work in terms of structured pedagogy, trying to make sure children are in classes at the right level, um, that we're providing teachers with the materials and the support that they need to do a good job in the classroom. And then where there is additional resource available, whether from government or outside support, how do we target that to the 
people who need that the most, who are most at risk of dropping out or most at risk of falling behind. But it, you know, it is a challenge where there, there are no, where there are not spare resources in the system to throw at this. Right, of course. Um, and you know, I'm sure there's a lot of parents listening, and I know you're a parent as well. What do you say to parents? How can they help their kids? You know, bridge that gap. How can they help make sure that their kids actually don't fall through the cracks here? So, and I was uh, talking about this earlier that this is now, my daughter is eight. And so this pandemic has now been a quarter of her life. Wow. That's a huge Um, number. And so, you know, when you think back to her early efforts to get her head around an iPad and what did that actually mean and, you know, Zoom play dates and all the other stuff that we've kind of become (laughs) more accustomed to, uh, it has had a significant impact on her. And it's also had an impact on parents who've been asked to step up and do, you know, do a lot of things that whilst also undergoing a lot of stress in you know their own professional lives or, or, or personal lives um the purpose of this report is not is not to try to scare anybody about saying you know this is a disaster any individual child is uh is at risk but also to to highlight a little bit the the systemic nature of this and the kind of response that that needs to be there not just from the education system but more broadly from from government and from societies um and of course parents will have a role to play in that in supporting uh, schools and supporting their children at, at different stages of education, but definitely the intention is not to uh, not to scare anybody. Not to scare, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important to bring light to something like this. And you did mention something about just now governments and organizations around the world working on this as well. Is that something that's happening? Is there a coordinated effort, or is this all on the teachers and the parents' shoulders? No, this is something where you know, as we look around the region, each government is thinking about, you know, how do we get back to normal? How do we accelerate? How do we recommit to what, you know, improving our education system? Um, And there's also a lot of, you know, multinational and international bodies that are doing work on this. So World Bank, UNESCO, UNICEF have done a lot of work on how to rebuild sort of foundational literacy and numeracy. Um, there's lots of different actors trying to to help you know, some of the technology platforms and offerings to to help teachers to help students get get back in, and I think the the underlying message of that is that there's a lot of resources out there, but people need maybe help in accessing those, understanding what's there, understanding what's suitable for their context, because every child is different, every classroom, every mm-hmm. school, every teacher, and so you know, there are resources out there, there are people working on this, but it needs to be a collective effort that not just at a, you know, at a school level, at a country level, but globally, we try to commit to closing this gap and, and having a better and stronger education system than we had before. I, I really hope that that's what happens here. And I'm really excited to hear that there's so many people around the world working on this. You know, it's a cliche saying that it takes a village to raise a child. I think it's going to take the whole world to fix the education system. So Stephen, you talk quite a bit about recovery. Uh, the report also mentions reimagine. What does that mean? Can you tell me a bit more about that? So I think lots of, I mean, we've talked about some of that stuff today already in, you know, what does a school mean? How do we keep using these technological tools? How do we rethink a little bit the, you know, now that we have a broader understanding of the importance of schools for children's mental and emotional well-being, how can we, you know, strengthen that even further? Now that we have the ability to understand differences between different groups of students, is there a way we can target support even better than we, than we were able to before? So I think the um, you know, this is a very hard thing to do as we come out of a crisis, get back into, you know, what feels like normal, try to put in place systems to help get kids back into school, help them catch up, help them accelerate, but still make the space and the time to step back and reimagine, you know, what have we learned about ourselves as an education system? Mm-hmm. What then do we actually want to do? What kind of experience do we want students to have? How do we want to engage with parents? Um, and actually have some answers to some of those questions about where are we eventually going with this? 
rather than missing the opportunity in the rush for us to, to get back in. And of course, the short-term recovery is very, very important as we talk about in the report. But I think it's an important period to enable people to, 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 to have that conversation at a system level. There's almost a bit of excitement, I would imagine, uh, of a tabula rasa where we get to build the kind of education system that would benefit all or most and have the more impact than ever before. I, I'm not sure I'd think about it as a tabula rasa because the... As we talked about the one of the things that we've learned is just how important some different elements of our existing school system are for children. So, you know, we can't get evangelical about technology and say, this is the best thing ever. We can, you know, do away with brick and mortar schools altogether. But maybe one of the things it's enabled us to do is to almost experiment with different models of hybrid or blended and when are different people in the building and what how are they interacting with children and with parents. And so maybe being a bit more deliberate about mm -hmm. the design of that experience for teachers, for students, um, can then be, you know, we, we, we build on what we had before, but we, we try to incorporate some of the other elements of, um, of what we've learned in order to build something better for the future. Sounds very exciting. Thank you for your time, Stephen. I think we're all out of time here. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm really looking forward to see how the global crisis on education around the world hopefully improves over the next few years. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm Nikki Karamova, and join us next time for more conversations on how we enable sustainable and inclusive growth.